0: It was a few weeks ago when uh, President Zelensky was in Estonia. And when they met with our Prime Minister, they discussed the will to defend of uh, Estonians, Ukrainians, the state of Ukraine, the state of Estonia. And the will to defend is the same sentence that has been written here in, in my sweatshirt. Uh, a few hours later, President Zelensky addressed the Estonian Parliament wearing the same sweatshirt. And the way he spinned this message was that it's much more urgent to draw our focus to resolve the win. Because this is what determines the future of the transatlantic world. And this is what we want to talk about today. Uh, This is what we have compiled into a report. And this is something we feel will provide you enough food for thought to actually convince that uh, getting to the victory is something that is affordable, doable, executable. And it's not only the grandiose words, but it's also almost 30 pages of different numbers, arguments, euros, percentages, days uh, that will convince each other that this is the pathway that can actually lead to a victory. we all read news. It doesn't matter whether we look towards Europe, or we look towards the Middle East. The democracy is at peril. That's the fact of life. And this is what's at stake there, and this is where the leadership of uh, Europeans and Americans are needed. And this is, I think, the reason why we're discussing this. The Ukrainian victory is the only thinkable, the only feasible outcome of that war. And that needs to be clear from the very beginning. It's a no-fail mission. If we fail, then it will be the open-door policy for all the future despots, murderers, autocrats, everyone who thinks that they can suppress the free- freedom uh, and the self-fulfillment right of the countries and the people around the world. This is the test that is ongoing there, and we can never forget it. You know, if we dig in into these sort of uh, frontline reports from the frontline cities. What is ongoing now is that Russia is convinced that they are winning. And they are convinced because they think that they can outproduce, outsuffer, outlast, out-whatever. And they're trying to implant this idea into the heads of all the people living in the transatlantic atmosphere. Well, our job, frankly, is to do exactly the same. We need to convince them that whatever they think, Whatever they take forward, they will lose. All the trend lines that their general staff is putting putting in their actual spreadsheets will lead to zero at the end of the day. Well, the good news is that, um, again, it's not only slogans who are supporting this thesis. It's also numbers. Does anyone know what's the difference between the uh, Ramstein coalition and Russian GDP? Well, just... From the hip. I mean, what's the. 30 times. So if Russians earn $1, then we match it with 30. That's a pretty big difference. The difference in uh, defense expenditure is 13 times. And if we look into the wartime expenditure, then Russia is actually, and that's the fun fact, Russia is spending twice as much to war efforts than the Ramstein coalition does in a month. 11 billion versus around 5.5 billion a month. So this is where we are. And I'm not speaking about the access to capital, access to talent, access to new technologies, access to better supply chains, um, access to people who are willing to stand for that effort, to stand for, for good to win and bad to be suppressed. Um, And this is what our report is about. We are at the territory of attrition war. This is something that is think, a fact, well, established fact. Attrition warfare is not something that was invented now in 2024. This has been the common characteristics of, well, basically all the wars throughout the human history. And the way it's being characterized is through three axes. Manpower. Resources. And will. And this is what we tackle in our report. First, manpower. The calculation is extremely easy. In order to convince your opponent that you will win at the end of the day as a result of the patricia war, you need to convince them that, well, you can kill more people than they can regenerate. Um, it's a little bit cruel to say that, but that's the fact of life when you're at war. The current figures are that Russians are able to generate around 40,000 troops as a uh, trained into units, trained soldiers in six months. Okay, they can recruit more, but everything that comes on top of that is a biomass. This is something that they just block the gaps and that's really like a baby diapers that you use once and then throw away. What matters is this 40,000. If we look at the statistics, then. Uh, Ukrainians throughout these last two wars have been already able to impose more attrition to them. They have been in position to kill more, damage more, impose more casualties. So this is something that needs to be sustained. Why? Because it convinces them that day by day, week by week, month by one, month, you will have lost more soldiers than you can reach. And this is something that implants this thought to their heads, that at the end of that road, well, you will end up with zero people. And, of course, if you put this, on, this thing on your graph, then it starts to convince you that maybe it's better to stop that cruelty. Second axis. And, of course, we will also spend pages and pages here on the better training and everything that needs to be taken on board day by day, where the laser focus needs to be there to adjust to what's ongoing on the battlefield. The second axis is resources. Um, What's going on in Ukraine is the fire superiority war. And how do you regain fire superiority? Well, by having more ammunition, by shooting longer, by being able to destroy more artillery um, than uh, than, uh, they can regenerate. The current figures are, and there have been a lot of complaints about that, how Europe has been low, how US has been slow, and all that. And even for our appetite, the pace has been too slow, and it has been too little. But at the same time, let's just look at the figures. In '21, the European manufacturing capability was around 300,000 uh, shells a year. It was roughly the same in the US. Uh, European Union will reach around 1 million manufacturing capability by the end of this quarter. This is tripling up in uh, less than three years. By the end of this year, the figure will be around 1.3, 1.4. And if everything goes according to the plan, uh, we get to around 2 million by the end of 25. And the US is pretty much in the lockstep in the same efforts, which means that by early Ukraine will be in a position where he can impose attrition to Russians in the same parameters every single day They will destroy more than Russians can impose on, on, on themselves. Mm-hmm. Yes, Russians might have more shells But our shells are better. They shoot longer. They're more precise. They're more reliable um, And it's doable And now I get to the third axis that is a willingness that is mainly something that is uh, All been converted to dollars and euros. Um, We need to sustain the war effort. And what we have calculated here in this report is in order to achieve these results, you need to invest around 0.25% of GDP to war efforts. So this number is important in two ways. First, well, it serves the purpose. 0.25 is around 130 billion. Total for The second point of 0.25 of GDP that no people calculate in their daily lives, in their households. But what it carries, 0.25 is a small figure. What time is it now? It's nine o'clock? Okay, five, five more hours today and we have done the part for this year. This is how small it is. 0.25. It's affordable, doable, everything—something that everyone can afford. And this is the message. Um, there have been efforts to depict this war as some sort of overhuman, Herculean task. Well, it isn't. It's fairly simple task uh, to do. So, what's the alternative? Well, alternative is very, very bipolar here. Russia will win. So, and if this alternative is on the table, then, you know, we have two options. First, of course, is ramp up, provide more aid and be more sustainable. And the other one is to give up. And now if we say the second option, then, well, I suspect that half of this room, including myself at times, I mean, it's an attrition war Uh, is feeling a little bit embarrassed of the thought they had in their heads. Um, And this is why I think Putin thinks that he can convince us that he will prevail. And this is something that we cannot um, let to happen. This is why we need to have this resolved win. So um, this is about the report now, but since I'm in um, the capital of the free world, then I have a second sheet of paper <laughs> and to speak a little bit about Europe, a little bit about US, a little bit how much interlinked we are. Um, we have been asked very often recently that, uh, well, what will happen with the transatlantic relations? What will happen with US-European defense relations once there might be a change in your administration? And what we always answer is that this is what the European and US relations is not about. Our relations are cemented into history, values, uh, the common way of thinking, economy. This is something that cannot overrule uh, overruled, changed over a weekend. And I can give you some figures. And. Almost all of, all of these figures actually come as a surprise to me as well. Europe is, uh, Europe is the biggest export market for US companies. As a matter of fact, 45 states have the Europe as the biggest export destination. Um, and it's by a factor of uh, magnitude higher than vis-a-vis China. 65% of FTIs, total FTIs coming to U.S. are coming from Europe. And you know how much it's in, in a year? 3.5 trillion trillion. This is the figure that I don't know how many zeros there are. That's a, that's a lot of money. And it's actually 2.7 times more than from Asia. Um, U.S. companies in Europe earned billion of profits in uh, 2022. Uh, That's also a lot of money. Um, And it's also around three times more than U.S. companies do from Asia. Then the main customer for U.S. LNG is actually Europe. It's not China or someone else. 60% of this goes to Europe. 60% of European dollars, European euros are... Coming to US from that channel. And it, it goes on. The list is it's just, it's just a manifestation that our prosperity and safety is something that we achieve for together, that we work for, that we aspire for every single day. On Ukrainian war, um, it does not come as a surprise, of course, especially for people in this room. Every single dollar of this 70 billion that us have already provided aid to uh, Ukraine does not leave the soil of us. It is directly going under contracts to thirty eight different states and moreover um, in the last twenty two months, can anyone just you know predict the figure what what's the total number of defense contracts that European governments have put forward to u uh, s defense companies in the last two years as a result of the war ninety billion that's a pretty healthy number um, and moreover easter does anyone know anyone in u s who likes iran anyone i mean you for more than 400 million people. There has to be one. <laughs> Is there anyone who aligns their security interests with uh, the values of North Korea? Well, probably not, not much. <laughs> Is there anyone who would think that the pathway that China has chosen in the advancing of, uh, of human rights, the uh, freedom of law, is uh, is a right pathway to take. It's a pathway to prosperity and safety. Um, Well, these three nations are the main supporters of Russia. This is how the world is being polarized. And again, if the true leadership, if the true guardians of the European um, or the transatlantic American values are needed, then the leadership of US and Europe is something that always has stewed up in the last 70 years. And this is the moment when this is again uh, needed. And this is the message we want to get through with this report. This is the LACMUS test. Uh, this is the truth that will be revealed eventually in Ukraine by uprooting the aggression as a tool. But it's just a plain notion that you just don't evade, occupy other countries. Just don't suppress the self fulfillment right of people and countries in 2024. And if we fail at that, then uh, we have much larger challenges uh, in front of us than uh, if we would fulfill this simple task of investing 0.25% of GDP every year for Ukrainians to win the war. So thank you, and I'm looking forward to discussions. I just wish that we don't make it an interview, so I'm I'm very much interested in your thoughts, your perspectives. It's, it's also a crucial time here in this town. Um, so be open, and let's uh, hope for a good discussion. Thank you. Uh, I promise
1: not to make it an interview, but allow me to open with a question at least. Um, picking up where you left off, I'd like to share the framing of there being almost a block of revisionists, the North Koreans, the Iranians, the Chinese in economic um, and dual use terms supporting the Russian war effort. And uh, the flip side of that is that we as the West need to support the Ukrainians to counter uh, the Russians and to support them. In the report, uh, you list the number of uh, 50,000 that um, need to be attrited every six months in Russian soldiers um, in order to put Ukraine on a positive trajectory, Mm -hmm. and for that, um, you list also a number of systems in which our defense industrial bases need to really perform. You've already referenced artillery from the podium. Both barrels and shells are listed in the report. Gimlers um, deserve and receive their own section. Yeah. Your air defense. defenses um, as well. Can you um, give us Americans a sense of how Europe is performing in some of these categories? Mm-hmm. Are, you, are you optimistic, pleased, content with... The levels of production and where they're heading or is there more work to be done and uh, what are the barriers to maybe improving our performance mm-hmm. there?
0: Well of course the honest answer is that no. I mean otherwise we wouldn't have these seminars. We would have a celebratory party how good we are but that's that's not the case. So for our appetite of course it's too slow and too little but, uh, but things are moving forward. I think the understanding that Europe needs to take its act together Uh, needs to attribute individual responsibility on the heads of state and government level and each and every member state is is getting home. Um, We are close to that. Um, Europe is uh, taking forward steps that would have been unthinkable two years ago. Uh, There is open debate about European defence bonds ongoing in Brussels and in most of European capitals. Um, And we are fairly confident that some of this will will materialize. Um, On this defense industrial base argument that we make here, this is hugely relevant for Ukraine. I I don't think that there's anyone who needs to be convinced on that. But likewise, this is hugely relevant also for Taiwan. Hugely relevant for Middle East. Hugely relevant for whatever crisis risk scenario ahead of us. So basically, we need to do it anyway. And the good thing with that, and I think this is something that we started to realize, I think early 23, that uh, it's not enough to only speak about threat. I mean, it's more than sufficient to speak about it in Estonia, for example, because it's it's very close to our skins. Um, but we need to be much more cleverer in advancing that story. in. Uh, in US, for example, and in many European capitals. And this is where this industrial base comes into play. We need to associate defense with jobs, investments, growth, technology, everything that, you know, makes it attractive for politicians and people and makes the vote for that. Uh, That spills over the technologies that open up new businesses, open up new ventures, open up new business categories. This is that, you know, makes all the other sectors vibrant. And there is so much ongoing in, in Ukraine in the technologi- technological front that uh, it will definitely determine the future of the battlefields, but also the future of the defense industrial base, both in the US and, uh, and Europe. And I mean, if you're working in that sphere, then this is good times. This is something that you want to associate yourself with. This is something if you're uh, in an undergraduate school, You want to associate your career with, and that's a sort of mental shift that is this happening that wasn't commonplace maybe just five years ago, and this is how we sort of build our success and build the future prosperity and build the future safety.
1: Yeah, I would say uh, my generation—I'm forty—came of age in post-911. Congratulations! (laughs) Thanks. I'm about to turn forty-one, so uh, my 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 fortieth year is nearly past. But the point being, my generation was formed by. Experiences of 9/11, Afghanistan, and Iraq, and so many of my cohort from graduate school wanted to learn counterinsurgency and speak Arabic. And I think there's a deficit of of Kremlin watchers, Russian speakers, uh, Russian area specialists, and and you feel that a little bit in the Washington community. There's a gray bearded class of experts who made their bones studying the Soviet Union. Then there's a gap, but now to your point, there are undergraduates who are beginning to really. Read into mm-hmm. um, Russian history. Um, picking up on the, um, the, the defense industrial base issue, one category that's also in here, which I did not mention, is the UAV, um, the UAV front. And here, you know, NATO focuses a lot on emergent disruptive technologies. Two lessons I've I've taken from um, the conflict when it pertains to UAVs is that they cannot substitute necessarily for artillery. But the Ukrainians are attempting to overcome some of their shell hunger with, um, with UAVs. And then secondly, that there is basically a complete and total ISR blanket over the front lines at this point because UAVs have just made it very difficult. You could never launch an Ardennes-style offensive like uh, the Germans did during mm-hmm. World War II. What are some of the thoughts swirling in your mind when you, when you see... Uh, began, of course, in the Karabakh, where UAVs really made their appearance on the battlefield in a major way for the first time in the conflict between a- Azerbaijan and Armenia. But really, the transformational lessons I think are being drawn now in Ukraine. Do you agree with that? And, and what do you what do you think about when you hear the the acronym UAV?
0: Well, first of all, on the g- generations, I think we are collectively hugely lucky uh, that this conflict happened in, in 2022. If it would have happened five years after, then there would have been zero generals, leading the US military, European militaries, who breastfeed the conventional defense. Um, it would have all been humanitarian aid, out of ferry operations, all that. But the current breed of generals, including General Cavoli in Europe, is someone who has in his muscle memory how to do this forward defense, how to fight Russians. Um, this is why they assume to the service, and we are, I think, extremely lucky that they can use this. What uh, what is uh, with repetitive actions is something that they still know by heart, and this is also true in Europe. And it's the last generation or last last year groups of generals who still have this. Uh, well, UAVs is a huge topic; um, it will definitely determine the future battlefields. It is definitely challenging the cost-to-target ratio elements. Uh, It is definitely putting a different headline to the requirements of of all the NATO member states when previously it was high price, high performance, that now it's basically good enough. Uh, And this is something that is happening in Ukraine. Uh, this is potentially something that will change the landscape of the uh, defense industrial base. Uh, this is something that makes it uh, much more attractive, much more agile for emerging companies to enter this uh, market rather than the behemoths of, of, the, of the last 50 years. Um, I think also that we shouldn't throw the sort of Ultimate conclusions from the FPV videos that we all see from Twitter. Um, the fact of the matter is that the FPVs are used because there is shell hunger. And uh, no matter how innovative you are, you, you cannot surpass the basic physics. The 155 is good because it will carry 30 kilos of explosive to up to 40 kilometers with a pretty good accuracy. Uh, trying to do the same thing with the UAVs is, uh, right. I think, currently it's still much more expensive. Yeah. Um, we are, I think, approaching to this cost to target ratio that will make it much more uh, attractive in years, especially at, with, with the environment of better surveillance, uh, um, intelligence, and target acquisition. Um, but I think the sort of old disciplines of artillery warfare is, is uh, going nowhere.
1: Yeah, I like to um, like to say that Ukraine has has had four uh, major offensives since the full scale invasion of Ukraine: the battle for Kyiv, which Ukraine won; uh, the battle for Kharkiv, which Ukraine won; the battle for Kherson, which Ukraine won; and then the counter offensive, which was less than uh, successful. I wouldn't say that Russia won, but Ukraine did not achieve some of its strategic objectives on land, even though it was rather successful uh, in the Black Sea, opening up. Uh, the corridor. And uh, one lesson I've taken away from the land counteroffensive is that we might have set too high of expectations for what Ukraine could absorb in short training windows. And maybe I could just quote from uh, your report briefly, because a good moderator always advertises uh, the product that's being displayed. Again, for those of you at home, it's called Setting Transatlantic Defense Up for Success. On page 12, um, uh, you and your team write, this is, uh, During the Second World War, British infantry would receive over 20 weeks of training before they were considered basically proficient, and the US Army operated with 13 to 17 weeks of basic training. The training set up to train entire brigades for the Ukraine counteroffensive was about five weeks, as you also note in this report. How should we think about training going forward? It's a bit of a leading question that obviously five weeks is not enough, but um, what lessons did you take away from the counteroffensive on the training side?
0: Well, first of all, I, I love your enthusiasm. I mean, if Ukrainian is winning all the battles, then how come they're still having 20% of their territory occupied? Um, it's it's a war. It's 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 a terrible war where Ukrainians are playing with the cards that have been dealt to them. All these cards are not checks. They are tens. They are also twos and threes. Um, the training remains. A Big requirement, especially the operational trainings, uh, battalion level and up. Uh, it's an ongoing, pressing requirement to take on board all the lessons uh, from the battlefield day to day, week by week. Uh, I think we collectively struggle with that. Uh, also, I can confess in Estonia, we struggle with taking on board uh, the lessons from Ukraine. It's, it's difficult. It's very difficult. It's difficult to analyze, difficult to implement. And you might imagine if it's difficult in Estonia in the deep, deep peace time, uh, then it needs to be much more difficult in in Ukraine. Um, Well, clearly this fact of it's difficult, this is not a source of solace or something. Um, we, We need to upkeep these training efforts. And if we look at the training efforts that uh, the West has collectively put forward, these numbers are actually quite encouraging. In total, uh, the U.S. efforts, the European Union, EU MEM mission, uh, U.S. or the U.K. Interflex uh, has in total drained 100,000 soldiers with a price tag of 350 million. That makes the 3,500 a soldier together with the equipment. That's a pretty good deal, I have to say. Uh, it's a pretty good return on investment. And, and I think this is the fact that we need to amplify and, and just keep on investing and keep on you know, taking all these lessons on board. Um, it's a difficult warfare. And, um, uh, and and the there are insufficient supply basically in all the cat- categories of warfare. So this is something that we sometimes uh, forget to discount if we do our plans. Uh,
1: Perhaps one last comment slash question and then um, if there are comments or questions from the audience, we'll go there. Uh, One area also discussed in this report um, is the issue of sanctions, which might be a little bit outside of your remit, but honing in on the defense element of sanctions, you raised uh, from the podium the vast superiority of the Ramstein contact group, the defense contact group's um, economic size vis-a-vis Russia, $47 trillion, uh, I think is the total sum, aggregate sum of what the, the Ramstein group offers with all of the advanced technologies that Russia also needs to be able to uh, run its war against Ukraine. Um, do you think that uh, in your mind, sanctions need to be adjusted or is it more a matter of enforcement of existing sanctions on the book to keep some of these technologies out of Russian hands?
0: Uh, <clears throat> of course, there needs to be more sanctions. Russian needs to get the message that uh, they will end up in uh, ruins. They will end up broken, uh, broke after these war efforts. This this needs to be part of the strategy. Um, Again, the track record of sanctions have not been perfect. Uh, as a matter, it's actually a fact. None of the sanctions from the Crimean w- War, I mean, two thousand fourteen, have been lifted. Uh, they have adjusted to that. They they learn how to live with sanctions, um, and they have man- mastered this art of being criminals as a, as a whole nation, basically. So we need to keep on running, keep keep on pressing, uh, keep on making this as a it's a separate KPI for, for attrition warfare, uh, and it clearly needs efforts from, from all of us. And uh, I think this is the ultimate question where the truth is revealed. Um, it's easy to make policy proposals when you're only you know, using to spare money. Where it gets difficult is where you need to make policy decisions at the expense of your own healthcare, your own infrastructure, your whole education system. Uh, and I, I don't think that the neither Europe nor the US is on that territory yet. But this is where the true leadership is revealed. And this is where I think uh, everyone will get eventually. Uh, hopefully it will be sooner than, than uh, later. Uh, but the problem attribution is getting there. And it's getting there on the individual level of heads of state and government. And if you're a prime minister, if you're a president, if you're a politician, Then the two parameters of of your life or two KPIs are basically elections that are upcoming everywhere all the time and legacy. And what legacy means in these times is fairly simple. Do you want your name and your picture in the history books with, with a sentence that you were in office when the transatlantic security was diluted or it was sold off? And there are single prime minister or president who wants to associate themselves with that theme. And once we get there, I think great things start to happen. Uh, True leadership is never being revealed when you need to step on pedestals. True leadership is revealed when you are alone in the room, whole world against you, and you need to pick between right or wrong. Um, And we're approaching that moment, and uh, Europe, US has a terrific track record in always making the right decision when the things get hard. And just to put a finer point on that,
1: you really only get one or two lines in history, I think, as an administration in the United States. And if the Biden administration is already tagged with the rather unfortunate, I'd even say feckless withdrawal from Afghanistan, and subsequently now also the war in Gaza, this would be an opportunity for them to really put a positive point on the board and uh, have a lasting legacy of delivering for Ukraine. With that, uh, we'll go to the audience. Ian Brzezinski has an opening point slash question, and I think I'll just bring the microphone to him and we'll go uh, from that. And when you think about NATO, $47
2: billion in GDP. Russia, $1.5, $1.8 billion in GDP. Spending um, NATO is at $1.2 trillion. Russia has an official defense budget of $88 billion, $120 billion, in to me. The fact that uh, the alliance isn't really enabling Ukraine to just crush the Russians with this disproportionate level of advantage is a reflection of political will. And one of the impediments to our ability to exercise political will has been the West's estimation of risk of escalation uh, in, in this conflict. And I wonder, do you agree with the assertion that the alliance, particularly the community here in Washington, has overestimated the risk of escalation? And underestimated the amount action that could be taken to enable Ukraine to win decisively and quickly on the battlefield.
0: <clears throat> well, in retrospect, if, if it's it's of course truth. I mean, every single red line that Russians have uh, have set have been crossed, and nothing has happened. Uh, Ukraine is opening up new fronts. Uh, Deep inside Russia, almost daily, uh, it has hasn't led into the escalation to anywhere else. So, I think the lessons learned is that uh, we need to do exactly the same things that we put forward in the report. We need to equip them with better soldiers, better weapons, more effective weapons. We're going to win. Them that then in the end of the road, Russians will lose. Um, and we don't really need to only determine the success by these contagious sort of elements of weapons. Uh, there are also a lot of other stuff that is extremely helpful in getting to that uh, cause. Um, all the simple t- anti-tank mines, um, artillery, um, long-range fires in our sectors rather than the attackers. Um, we just need to keep on going and uh, you know, I- ignore all these self-imposed restrictions. I'll just What do you think? I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm... <laughs> i I'm... I think we have underestimated, we have
2: underestimated the realm of action that we Uh For example, I think it's stunning that NATO isn't more involved in supporting Ukraine directly as an institution. That itself sends a powerful signal, not just to Ukraine, which is the wrong signal, but also the wrong signal to the Russians. Uh, mm-hmm. Can't deter effectively if you don't demonstrate
3: the will to fight. And that's what concerns me about the West strategy, transplant strategy for support of support
0: to Ukraine. I
1: would just add to that, I think it also sends a signal beyond Europe. If third countries conclude that the US can be pushed off of its line um, because of nuclear saber rattling, then the attractiveness of pursuing one's own nuclear weapons program I think increases dramatically. And as a side note, I think um, I don't think the Iranians have Paid an all-too-high cost for their own rush to a nuclear weapon, which also suggests that the pain for trying to get one might not be all that large. So Americans, going back to the days of the Kennedy administration, have worried about a nuclear proliferation cascade. Um, so perhaps this is just part of our our mode of thinking. But I, I don't think that we're de-incentivizing the pursuit of weapons of mass destruction. Ian wants to come in. Hey, with one just, more. Like, just push on this. You know,
2: classic. Now, struck in your report, if I could find one area where I would criticize it where I should have done more, to so take that issue on. Shouldn't bringing Ukraine into NATO be part of the win strategy instead of the post-war strategy to sustain
0: peace? Well, clearly the answer is yes. If we want prosperous, safe Europe, then uh, it needs to be environment where every single nation can uh, choose their own pathway. Can you choose their own alliances? There can be no dictator or outside telling nations where you can belong or where you cannot belong to. And as long as we accept this attitude, we are in the negative territory. That's, that's a plain fact. Ukraine needs to be in a position where they can choose their own destiny. And the destiny in Europe, in transatlantic world in the last 75 years, has been in NATO. Uh, economically, it has been in European Union. Uh, And then this is something that uh, needs to be at the end of the road for them, because this is the ultimate guarantee. This is what they are fighting for. Uh, This is how they have determined their destiny. This is how they have committed to these values. And this is not only declarations or some bills they're paying. Uh, This is the ultimate sacrifice that you can do for for your own destiny. So I don't think that there is any discounts that we can do on, on that front. Okay, we can discuss what is exactly the date or, or w- w- whatever other parameters. But at the end of the road, there needs to be full full membership. I mean, that's clear.
4: Great, thank you, uh, so uh, Steve again from Brandon Georgetown University. I wanted to draw you out a little bit on your. First of all, congratulations on completing really the detailed and impressive report. I wanted to draw you out a bit more on your ministry's relative net assessment of. Ukrainian and Russian force generation capabilities. You noted in your remarks earlier in in the report about the capacity uh, that would be needed to really diminish effectively Russian force generation capabilities, and particularly the highly trained that that cadre that you noted that they would need every six months to really be effective in in, in holding their current positions and perhaps getting additional things. Well, what about the Ukrainian force generation? It seems this has been a a story that has been bubbling up now more and more, especially with evidently the position that General Solzhenik took uh, in calling for wider mobilization to achieve up to about 500,000, if reports are correct, um, you know, whether that's sustainable with the Ukrainians really we can generate that kind of force. And then also, what about uh, capacity to train a, a matching cadre? Would they have to do two to one or uh, three to one to to be able to, uh, to uh, undertake any kind of offensive operations against the Russians? So I just want to pick in those contested areas. Just want to draw you a bit more on your is calling for A lot more of attrition. This is one of the key things. There's been a lot of focus on all the equipment. That's one factor, but personnel
0: and will to fight is the other major factor. Yeah, thank you very much. That's um, that's a very serious perspective. Um, I think the way I'm thinking of it right now is that how are Russians thinking of the attrition warfare? Do they have a similar strategy? What are their KPIs? And I would imagine that there are two key determinators in their heads, what they need to influence to get to their results. And the first, of course, is the Western aid. Uh, they need to diminish it. They need, they need to make a case that it's all useless, it's all spent, it's all whatever. And we have read it from the papers here and there. A, this is a very powerful narrative They—they spill over the world. And the second one is the same uh, manpower element, the same mobilization argument. Um, There is no way that Ukraine can win this protracted attrition warfare without mobilization. That's a fact. Um, So our job in this journey is to encourage and facilitate to do the right thing. Not, Not to make a fuss or not to make a political problem out of their internal whatever issues, uh, but you inject trust, transparency, um, something that will lead them to do the difficult but right decisions. Um, there haven't been much facts about the Ukrainian uh, fourth generation, the ratio, so I don't really want to go there because I, I don't want to present opinions on, on facts, but uh, they're also struggling. And then these numbers that have been publicly put forward, up to 500,000 for a couple of years, that's a lot of people. Uh, What they haven't done, they haven't really tapped into the generation below 30. Uh, I think the average frontline age is above 40 now. Um, So it tells two stories. One story is that the warfare is grim, ugly. Uh, horrendous, but it also tells the story that there is unused potential. Uh, something that will inject hope uh, into the same strategy that Ukraine can easily win the war, well, not easily. We can never use that adjective here, but um, th- there is pathway that uh, can be executed. Michael?
2: Hi, Michael O'Connor, Yorktown Institute. You mentioned the um, strikes and raids and uh, covert operations of the Ukrainians that have been pulling off in Russian territory. Um, two part question on this. One, what do you think the long term operational, tactical, morale benefit of these will be? And two, it's no secret that there are some in the Biden administration who hate that the Ukrainians keep doing this, uh, evidently against direct advisement. Um, if you think there's value to these, how, how do um, Ukraine's European NATO allies advocate for the use of these attacks to skeptics in Washington?
0: Well, the art of the warfare is imposing these strategic dilemmas to your opponent. And this is what Russia does every day, and they do it extremely successfully. And they're extremely successful in finding the very high return on investment areas in, in doing that, in uh, just occupying the bandwidth of our uh, you know, leadership time to deal with things that are imposed by Russia and but are totally unrelated with the worker. They are doing this every day with well, immigration, also very relevant topic here. They do it uh, also in Europe. Uh, they have s- spread the confusion in Latin America, in Africa. And, and the reason they're doing this is because they know that if they can associate Russian actions uh, around the world with the Ukrainian war somehow, then you create a calculation for the West to say that, okay, if the Ukrainian war will end, then maybe also the inflation will end, maybe the world hunger will end, maybe the energy crisis will end, and, and, and so forth. Of course, these things are totally unrelated because they are all caused by Russia. Um, but this is the strategy they are executing, and, and I think it would be extremely dishonest not to allow the same thing for Ukraine, especially if they are doing it on the soil of the murderous country. Uh, they need to impose the same strategic dilemmas, that the warfare is not only something that the departments in the Ministry of Defense are dealing with, but it needs to be something that's also associated with other areas of life in Russia including economic life. If the economic life is, is not hurt by the warfare, then the likelihood that war will end soon is, is just the you know, prolonged perspective.
1: I would just add uh, the Ukraine, as the smaller country, can hardly afford to allow Russian troops to sunbathe on their side of the border and come across at will. Even the US military, the biggest, strongest, most impressive fighting force in the world, struggled in Afghanistan with safe havens in Pakistan, struggled in Iraq with rat lines from Iran and Syria, struggled in Vietnam with, mm-hmm. with um, forces coming in from across the border, Cambodia, Laos, et cetera. And so um, I think it's, it's hardly fair to, uh, to demand of the Ukrainians that they fight with one uh, arm tied behind their back. Um, are there any more questions? All right. Our well, right. perspective, from I think, from our, I think from well, he'll sp- have a perspective, I'm okay. sure,
0: I'm really Alexander. was you very much for this visit, for this conversation
5: to the embassy, to the job. And we really appreciate that Estonian people standing with us really together and one of proof that when we are calculating and speaking about numbers, Estonia is always the first to GDP, and uh, assistance to uh, Thank you for Emphasizing NATO uh, question is substantial, it's critical. Uh, Our victory is uh, essential for Europe, essential for uh, the United States, for the US leadership. And of course, uh, your words uh, is like words of hope, but not only words, but uh, practical. Russia its a, a great challenge, but at least we should start from the certain elements. We see a very positive uh, this support and these elements that we're working hardly on daily basis. We're using your support, these colleagues, uh, to work here in a special target audiences. And again, uh, thank you, we think that we need uh, more in I really appreciate uh, to feel uh, the support of our Baltic friends, our US colleagues, and uh, friends in Europe. On a daily basis, it is so crucial and it is so
0: important and vital for us. Mm-hmm. Thank you once more again, and thank you, And thank you, your guarantee burden for all of us. Ah, that So, other uh, 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 any other perspectives on 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 the report or the whole prospect of Ukraine winning the war? So, what is the sort of main criticism against that? I mean, that is, I guess, something that we, we want to hear the most.
1: Deb, you're not allowed to ask a question. You have to offer a perspective now. Here yeah. you are. <laughs> <laughs> That's
0: a question. Thank you so well. much, sir.
1: Oh,
3: really good discussion, great report. um, deprecating with the Atlantic Council. And I just wanted, next week, we have a contact group meeting in Brussels and followed by the Defense Ministerial. And they're expecting about another 50 countries to come to the contact group meeting. There's been a lot of hand wringing in certain parts of NATO and in the West that we are emptying out our stocks for Ukraine. The question I have is a little more fundamental. And my question is, it's almost flippant, which is, what the heck else are you going to do with your stocks? Um, If Ukraine uses this equipment now to win this war now, this is a problem you don't have to face later. So the heart of the question is, there are a number of countries in NATO who are nowhere near the front lines with anyone who have their ports stuffed with enough US vessels to have their own armada. Um, And they still are holding on to things like Patriots and other things that we know they're never going to use. They're not, I mean, there are some countries that have Patriots and I feel like, what are you going to do? Go after your Austrian neighbors or something like that? So the question is, how do you convince these other countries that you can start putting these things forward um, you're not going to use them because there's no threat against you right now. And you can start sending this forward. And And how do you make them convinced of doing this, especially during this crucial time when the U.S. is, um, excuse my language, screwing itself over on the Hill um, on this and not coming up with this? What is going to take for the Europeans to really stand up and say, okay, we understand you have this political issue. Democracies are massive. How do you then say, in the interim, what we're going to do is send these newer weapons we have to Ukraine, and then you can backfill them later once you have your funding? How do you convince them to do this now? And I think you know the countries I'm talking about.
0: Uh, <clears throat> that's a good question. Uh, well, the strategy that we have chosen is not to insult our allies, not to put them on the spot. Uh, What we rather try to do is to inspire them, to uh, build a case that caters them their interests. Primarily we have chosen to do it by showing example. Already in January 22 we sent in Javelins. We had a lot of questions from from media, from domestic players. So, Why are doing this? What's the purpose? It's escalating all that. Our answer was very simple. The sole purpose of buying Javelins was shooting Russian tanks. This is why we sent them there. Uh, We chose to send out our howitzers already in January, a month before the war. We had a lot of criticism. Um, And the reason was the same. If we all want to prevent the war, then the words are clearly not enough. We need to send weapons. There was a debate for a few months or a few weeks, but uh, it ended up with, uh, well, now all the European... Nations sending in lethal weapons uh, at the end of 22 we formed uh, the so-called Thailandlin Blage where 11 uh, nations uh, uh, it, it was a similar time of warfare where the room was pretty dark, the perspective was pretty grim. Um, we sh- chose to s- send out all our towed hoisters. And the message with that was very simple. Well, first of all, Ukraine needed it. We we needed to send send it. But the second one was exactly the point you made. If Estonia can afford to take the risk in the front, uh, being exposed to the biggest risk and being in the geographic location where it's the most difficult to, to guard the NATO territory, then there are Zero nations in the alliance who would have the excuse that we cannot send them because we are exposed to some sort of risk. Um, The third thing, and this is what our prime minister is doing, we try to speak about the honest words about our our risks. If we speak about diluted stocks, uh, the inability to manufacture uh, the uncompetitiveness of our industrial base, and these are all like back office terms for lieutenant colonels. something that your immediate thought in your head is that, "Well I don't know, do something about it, fill your excel sheets, make a meeting uh, But what it actually means is that if you lack stocks in your inventories, then you're unable to defend your country that That is the truth that is the actual consequence of that, and we hesitate to use these words. Why? Because it uh, dilutes the political responsibility. Uh, There are a lot of prime ministers who want to speak about the the, uh, insufficient supplies and whatever. But I think there would be zero prime ministers who would proudly stand out and say that uh, we are unable to defend our country. And if we get the problem attribution there, then things start to change.
1: Well, NATO came up twice, um, and Ian raising it is, um, is, uh, is really appropriate because he's been one of the strongest and most eloquent defenders of um, an advocate for Ukraine's entry into NATO. I would also urge our viewers to check out my colleague Luke Coffey's testimony in front of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee That's a great one. last week. Great, you've already seen it. Um, I'll preview also, I have an essay coming out with the Conrad Adenauer Foundation hooked to the 75th anniversary of the Washington Treaty in April on the same topic. But we were here today, not for those, but instead for this, setting transatlantic defense up for success in military strategy for Ukraine's victory Great and report. Russia's defeat. <laughs> I urge you all to read it. Um, again, it'll be posted um, underneath the event link at Hudson.org. Um, if you're there right now, check it out. If you're watching this on YouTube or another channel, navigate there, or I'm sure it's on the Estonian Ministry of Defense or embassy website. Um, thank you so much for... Uh, allowing us to partner with you today. I hope you've had a wonderful time in Washington and uh, look forward to another Hudson, Embassy of Estonia event sometime in the near future. Thank you everyone.
0: Thank you very much.